The Talking to Ourselves podcast is brought to you by our friends at The One Club, the world's leading nonprofit organization recognizing creative excellence in advertising and design. Coming to you from the penthouse of JSM Music in Soho, I'm Omid Farhang, Chief Creative Officer at Momentum. Now, Momentum is part of a network of agencies called McCann World Group, which is led by global creative chairman Rob Riley, my guest today. Since taking the helm three years ago, Rob has led a creative resurgence at McCann and brought some mojo back to one of the great advertising institutions, winning Agency of the Year at the One Show in Cannes, Network of the Year at the Andes, and spearheading work like Lockheed Martin's Field Trip to Mars and State Street Financial's Fearless Girl. Rob was named to the 2016 Creativity 50, a list that also includes Beyonce, The Rock, and David Bowie. No big deal. Rob joined McCann after 12 years at Crispin Porter Bogusky, enjoying a rare run of success that culminated with Agency of the Decade honors. While at CPB, Rob helped me get my first job in advertising as a wee lad. He also played a big part in me getting my current gig as a less wee lad. He's been a great friend and mentor to me. This is Rob Riley and I talking to ourselves. If I was talking to 16-year-old Rob Riley right now, what would he tell me his big life plan was? I had such amazing hair back at 16. I've seen I know mean, the iconic look now of me is bald guy almost dying. That's my look, <laughs> I like to say. Uh, but I had such a great look back then. I really was into soccer. I thought I could potentially be a player maybe go on you know <clears throat> you know some kind of professional level thought that was going to be a de- decent part of my life um soccer at 16 what was your single greatest moment of soccer glory or sports glory before you answer I'll go first I once hit a grand slam a three run homer and a bases clearing double all in a single intramural softball game okay now you go I think you leave out the intramural softball <laughs> game because I mean you're pretty. I mean, look at you. You're a pretty good size. You're a pretty good athlete. I've seen. I played basketball with you. You're pretty good. So there had to be. You're probably being modest, right? Because it's your show, but you don't want to say that you were a great athlete. I'm trying. But I'm you working were on being a pretty good athlete. I'm working on being more modest. I played basketball with you, and you didn't grow up playing basketball. But you can learn a lot about who you are as a professional by playing basketball with you. Why? Why do you think that? You ravenously go after every rebound. Mm. Um, you're not looking for your shot. You're trying to get the ball into the hands of the people um, who you want to put in positions to succeed and score. You're scrappy as hell. You'll die for loose balls. Um, and you don't try to do anything that you don't know how to do out there, but you outwork every single person on the court. Mm. Wow. An accurate description? It's pretty good. Pretty, pretty, pretty good. <laughs> Yeah, uh, what a good, uh, what a good sort of analogy for the way I work. Soccer-like advertising is about talent and it's about stamina. Yeah, I think talent is the the number one thing. I think that's where, you know, people like say that. Oh, now the culture at McCann is so great. It's like, mm, I don't know if that is true. You know, I have one one vision, one one uh, not one vision. I have one. Uh, perspective on culture. I hate that word. I hate when agencies like the culture is so great here, the company culture. It's like the culture is winning, man. It's like, you know, when you're winning, everything feels good. Everybody's nice to each other. Everybody's got energy. Everybody's got momentum. Everybody's feeling good. Everybody's got confidence with clients. But when you're losing, losing accounts, losing pitches, not winning any maybe industry awards, you know, it's the, the, the culture is, shit, we're in trouble. So, uh, and I've been on both sides of it, frankly. And I, uh, I, 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 I sort of try to convince everybody at McCann that, hey, we've had a few good years. We need to keep going. Like, this is, uh, there's no, no resting because you, the feeling we have, you don't want to ever let go. Um, so even though the business, of course, is a business of ups and downs, I never get too high or get too low. But I certainly think, the momentum part is so critical. And you and I worked at the same company for for years, which was all about momentum. Yeah. And I think that's why it ended up being Agency of the Decade, because every year we're like, what's next? What's next? What's next? Everybody wants to shit on us. You know, everybody wants to shoot us. So we sort of had to figure out how to find another gear each year, which is a very tough thing to do. 
And then I think, you know, when it doesn't happen a year or when it starts to go, you really can feel it because you had come from so many years of just highs that even if you have a pretty good year, it doesn't feel like a great year. So it is um, an unforgiving business, I think, in that, that sense. Yeah, when you have credibility through some wins, when you lose a couple uh, pitches or you lose a client, you can pick everybody up and say, it's going to be okay, we're going to win the next one. But after a few losses start stringing together, no matter what you did two or three or five years ago, it's hard to do that motivational speech more than you know, two or three times in a row before people stop believing you. <clears throat> yeah, I this is, I think it's very much like sports. You know, you watch these teams that go on runs. You watch these, uh, you know, players whether they're a quarterback or a pitcher who's got confidence. I mean, it's pretty mind blowing. I think agencies and you know businesses are very similar. You know, you put the you, you you sometimes have to pay for the best players, and then you put them in, and they 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 either perform or they don't perform. You know, and when they perform, you win. I mean, I don't think it's very, very different, but um, I don't know. We're, we're, we're having a good time now, but uh, I, you know, I feel the pressure every day because maybe I've, I've been through the long stretches of success and then see it come crashing down pretty quickly sometimes because of not winning yeah. or people leaving or, you know, just people tired. You know, I think that's something that people don't talk about a lot is uh, – you know, to be a great agency, it's like it's tiring. Yeah. You know, like it's 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 uh, it it takes a lot of effort to be great. It takes a lot of effort to be average, frankly, these days. But to be great, man, you you have to put in the work over and over and over. So I I think there's a, there's a reason why the Patriots win every year. It's like Belichick, this guy's insane. You know, insane in a good way, meaning like he just figures out a way to win. And Tom Brady, he just prepares himself to such a degree, physically, mentally, that, you know, he's like Superman out there. So you have those combination of uh, a coach who's so ingenious of, of when he finds solutions to like having no players or his players are injured, he's got no stars, but somehow his game plan wins. And then you have a, a player on the field who leads it, who ends up caring so much about what he eats, how he prepares that at 40 years old, he's better than the guys that are 25 or, or 28 years old should be in their prime. So <clears throat> I think we could learn a lot from sports you know, uh, certainly in advertising. It's well, pretty similar. I, I freelanced uh, at McCann right when you started there, and it was a very interesting time. And if I told you three years later you would enjoy the success that you've enjoyed in your first three years, I'm sure you would have said, I'll take it. But it's interesting. In our business, like, you know, if you win an Oscar or you win a Grammy, you can dine out on that for the rest of your life. And in our business, you win one, and all it does is set the expectation that if you don't win it next year, the year has been a failure. So you feel a sort of imminent sense of pressure to, and because you were sort of built for this life from your decade at CPB. Yeah. Uh, I do, but I, I you know, I, I never get too high or too low. I think, you know, the reason I went to McCann was to work on big, big things. And Crispin had big brands, but McCann obviously has massive brands like L'Oreal and GM and Microsoft and, all these these brands that are just massive in culture was I, I you know the brands have an opportunity to be meaningful in people's lives and brands have an opportunity to fill the void that government is certainly not going to be doing anytime soon with um, the people we have in office now so when you have big brands like like the Microsofts and the you know GMs and the L'Oreal's and the Verizon's and the and then the things like the U.S. Army, you realize, wow, okay, you're in a position to maybe affect people's lives in a meaningful way that you might not in um, a smaller market or a smaller agency. So I think that's where size and scale and, um, you know, importance of the brands you work with are, are, are critical to the decision as to why I came to, to McCann and came to New York. Uh, so the the pressure is more of like how do I help help these brands succeed at a time when people rely now on brands more than ever, and because you know 
what we used to believe in the government would help us is not happening. So I think it's a pretty important time for brands and the agencies who are, you know, partnering with these brands to see what they can do. And that doesn't mean it has to be philanthropic or, you know, uh, sappy. It, you know, it might be, how do I get someone faster, someone to, uh, to, to their, to their, uh, job faster. You know, these are important things that people are relying upon somebody to help them. I mean, look at our subway system is very complicated and it's failing in a lot of ways. Like, you know, do, does, do brands have to step in and fix this problem because there's a, there's a budget issue. So I, I think we're in a new world where the brands are actually going to be taking care of people more and, uh, and they'll they'll profit from it too, and I think that's the new world we're living in, where it's like, you know, doing good for the world and making money don't have to be mutually exclusive anymore. I think we're finding it. If you look at Small Business Saturday, I think that was the first first thing that I remember. Uh, that here's a brand that had the opportunity to help small businesses, and they've profited from it also, and it sort of changed who they are as a company. Whereas Amex used to be a, this comp- card for rich people. And now you think of Amex and the things they're doing with small business, and it's still going on. You know, they're a brand that actually is for the people and for small businesses. So, and I think they've they've done very well from that and profited from that versus the being so. And they retained part of their exclusiveness too. You still think of American Express as the brand that has some of these rewards, and some you're in a club when you have that card. You pay a premium to have it, but they're also helping small businesses. So you start seeing, okay, I can see how a brand can really play on both sides. It's what makes it exciting to be in the business right now. You think about the industry that you first entered and the job was mostly about generating some differentiation, you know, this gum is mintier than that gum, you know, this soap is more cleansing than that soap. And now we're sort of moving into this era where we're going from differentiation to how can the brand like, you know, amplify human potential in some way. And if you can't answer that question, the brand is probably in trouble. Yeah, or you've that's the job of the agency. I mean, that's why we have the mission of how do we help brands play a meaningful role in people's lives. Like, that's an awesome, awesome job if you're a young person to go to, to work and say, wow, I need to figure out how MasterCard can be meaningful in, in, in people's lives. And it's different in every country. That's the fascinating part of it. What a MasterCard might mean to somebody in the USA versus Brazil, where, you know, there's a big financial crisis there and young people don't even believe in banks and money and credit cards you know because there's no one's helped them and explained it to them so is that a role for mastercard to play there but in the u.s is it about bringing people you know experiences around their passions which is awesome but very different than potentially helping a uh the youth of of a country understand and understand saving and understand credit and all those things so i I think it's it's a very interesting time and um, challenging for the brands, but incredibly opportunistic. Uh, you could be, you know, incredibly opportunistic with if, if you do it right. You know, brands can really get in there in, in people's lives. And uh, but, you know, you got to be careful to do it, you know, the right way to be innovative, to be transparent, to be doing it you know, the right by the environment and certainly make products cheaper, but also better. Your job is global. You could never sleep and still not impact every single piece of work or every single, you know, urgent meeting that's happening. How have you uh, adapted your style to figure out how to sort of scale your impact? Great question. You know, I trained under Alex Boguski, uh, and Alex was famous for looking at every piece of work, at, really at the, at the beginning. At the at, you know towards his end, he was very smart um, in not doing that. But there was a point where like you have to go, and there'd be like fifty people waiting outside Alex's office at two in the morning. At two in the morning, you know, and for a t-shirt. Um, and there was a high quality control. And listen, you can't you can't question the method at all. Because it obviously worked, um, and then when he 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 realized, you know, he, and he doesn't get a lot of credit for this. Like he knew he didn't want to be in the business anymore, so he put forward Andrew and I, Keller and I, as the co CCOs, and he 
but he didn't didn't retire. He like just sort of pulled back, and he pulled back from clients, and he sort of like eased his way out of the business and eased his way out of the company. Whereas by the time he he left, you know, he had really been gone for years. And you know, Andrew and I and other people were were sort of you know running the the creative side of the business. Uh, and you know, we didn't lose one client when he finally you know retired in the end. You know, because he was very gracious and not making a big deal of him leaving, not trying to be disruptive to this company that he obviously helped found and, and build. So I learned a lot from from that part. Uh, but he was also still around. If you had a real issue, you know, uh, people are like, well, at the end, did Alex even help? He go, he helped, you know. I mean, he, he, he when I was remember struggling on Microsoft, you know, as our we had just won it and we had a campaign that died and we sort of had nothing, and you know, I, I thought we were going to be fired, you know. And I remember calling him on a Sunday, say, "Hey, man, I need your help." Which I think in the ten years I worked there, or eleven years I worked there, I never once did that. You know, I always prided myself on I'm the guy who doesn't bring him the problem. And that was the one time where I said, "I I kind of need your help." And I went in on a Sunday, and he had his, he had a guitar he was learning to play, uh, and we came up with the Alma PC campaign. And uh, it was pretty, still in my mind, it was pretty amazing. But back to him being, you know, the kind of, you know, the bottleneck we had with approvals. So when I came to McCann, I kind of realized, man, uh, this will be impossible. So the deal I made with everybody, and I really focused on New York the first year at McCann, because I, I, I realized if we didn't make New York the best office, we had no chance of being the best network. New York had to be the war machine. So we started bringing in the talent, whether it be freelance like you or just people I knew, John Mescal from Australia, eventually Eric Silver, um, surrounding Sean and Tom, the two CCOs um, of New York. And we sort of built it from there. But I also kind of made a decision that, you know, once things got sort of settled and we had won a few pieces of business, that I made a deal with everyone around the world, like, you do not have to show me one piece of work. No one is required to show me anything. You can. I, I suggest it sometimes. You know, I'm here to help. But, you know, you hire people and, you know, get out of the way. I say it all the time on social media um, because I believe it. I think you have to hire the people, let them do their job. People like you, people like Pierre, people like Sean and Tom, people like Eric Silver, people like Adrian Baton uh, in Europe, you know, um, you know, people like Pat Barron in Australia, Rob and Lolly, you know, Monica Morrow in, in Spain. Like, I, I Skype with them and I talk with them all the time, but it's not to, okay, show me what you got, you know, or why are we doing this? You, you, you didn't get this approved. It, there's never been a, chance, a time where that's happened. So I've made that deal with people, and I think it's worked out pretty well. But having to give up the control is very difficult. You know, because it's creative. You know, I, my opinion is different than yours. Um, you know, you and I worked together a lot in, you know, the time we were there, the years we were there. And, like, we didn't agree on a lot of stuff. We compromised and got to the place we liked. But, you know, that's, that's part of it. So I think to manage a big global network, you have to believe in the people you hire or the people that are there that, or you, or you won't win. The push and pull with people who you respect creatively, and as long as you know the respect is there, you can have knockdown, drag out fights over whose creative taste wins out. But you're right. I assume that you don't get to do as much of that because your day would get swallowed up doing that. Um, you must miss that a little bit. Yeah, but I do. I, listen, when I say people aren't required to show me anything, doesn't mean they don't. Right. You know, I mean, so I do a lot of it. Um, I've worked on a lot of things that have, you know, um, been been in the news or, you know, because I, I know there are going to be winners or I know it's important or I know it matters. But it's pretty non-combative. You know, I still work a lot on, you know, Microsoft and Verizon and MasterCard and, um, you know, uh, the global accounts I, f I focus on a lot or the, the massive sure. business accounts like a Verizon, which is super important to us and I think the culture. But yeah, I, I guess you miss it, but you know, at some point, you got to let people do it. You know, you have to let people. Um, 
And I don't think people would appreciate it. You know, I don't know if Omid would appreciate if every every week him and I had a, you know, and I'm talking like you're not here, but uh, if you and I had a scheduled, you know, 10 a.m. meeting uh, for two hours every Monday to give me to take me through all the work you've been presenting, that'd be a fun job. Probably wouldn't be that great for you. It might be you might find it kind of helpful, but also it's another layer of pressure that you probably don't need in a job that's already big and, you know, schedules are always impossible. So I try to keep my role when it comes to the people that are in charge of these these divisions and these offices as uh, uh, consultant versus decision maker. Right. I mean, I think that's the thing we did learn with 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 working with Alex too is like he sometimes just change the strategy or say I don't like this we're not doing it and uh the frustrating part for all of us was fuck he's right you know we knew he was right in the end or it ended up being right uh and maybe that would be the case with you know if I had I would do it more but I don't think you could do it with such a large organization be right. that guy who just blows something up at the last minute it brings up actually a really great point which is <clears throat> You know, many have tried and failed to leave CPB and be the Alex of their new agency. What's something that worked for Alex that you knew wouldn't work for you when you took the job at McCann? Um, yeah, we just talked about um, his ability to sometimes even like – five weeks in in a six-week process to say, no, nah, we're changing it, we're going this way, and it'll be great, and we'll make it work. Uh, it worked for the CBB, obviously. Um, but, you know, sometimes Alex would be the first to admit he would punt on things. You know, he would, I don't want to work on, eh, you know what, Coke Zero, I'm not, forget it, I'm not into it. So people like myself or Andrew uh, would Say, well, all right, well, I'll do it, you know. So I, I think uh, he had the luxury of of punting on on businesses, picking I, what he wanted to work on. No, at the end, just saying, I don't believe in this anymore. I, you know, which was you know kind of awesome. But in the end, you know, the CPB once it got pretty big, three offices in the U.S. and then, you know, like it's a it's a big machine to to keep feeding. You know, a lot of coal is needed to feed these engines sometimes. Right. So. Uh, and I, I think that's why he ended up probably making us co-CCOs in the end, Andrew and I, is because um, there were a lot of hard accounts at CPB. You know, it wasn't like it was all you know sunshine and 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 roses. You know, it was it was it was hard work, hard accounts, a lot of retail. Um, so I, that's probably what I haven't been able to do. You know, I mean, I I think I have. Uh, tremendous empathy for clients i understand a lot of everybody wants to be brave and do the things that maybe seem the boldest but you know a lot, a lot of times our clients brand uh, kids college education and mortgages are all wrapped up in this job they might have you know so the decision isn't as easy as like come on you know have some balls or like let's go for it or like take some risks you know, like if we lose accounts, we I think we're good enough. We go get new accounts. Maybe somebody has to get laid off. Maybe we don't get bonuses. Something has to happen. You know, get thinner toilet paper. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> uh, but you know, if you're good, you know, you go get more accounts. But like sometimes our brand partners, their whole lives are wrapped up in. It. So you got to have a little bit of empathy. It's like what is making them afraid? And the job of all of us is to remove those barriers of fear. Uh, one by one, it, you know, and sometimes, oddly enough, like testing is a is a way to get the idea you want through. You know what? You're nervous. Let's test it. Right. Let's just see how it goes. So those things don't um, make me afraid. I don't like necessarily testing work to decide if you're going to do something or not. But if someone is really afraid or is feeling uneasy about it, you know, that's the best ideas usually make you feel uneasy. But, you know, it, it's it's a tough job being a client these days. You know, there's a lot of pressure. You know, and that you know, they're uh, all our all our brands are under 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 siege. You know, so we're our job is to be the positive people. You know, keep coming up with solutions. I mean, delusional positivity was my favorite phrase from Crispin days, and I say it all the time at McCann. Um, I think we can do anything. You know, regardless of of how daunting it is, and I think that's how things like field trip to Mars and 
you know, Fearless Girl got made is because there was a level of delusional positivity that, that, that I believed in. And I think Eric believes in and, you know, Devika, I mean, these kinds of, you know, the same kind of ethos of like, you know what, we're going to get it done somehow. We're going to do it or we're going to die trying. Do you ever get nervous before client meetings? No, I don't think so. I don't, I get nervous when the work isn't good. That's the only time. Like everybody's like, and I, I try to stay out of uh, creative presentations more and more. Again, because I've really I've hired some senior awesome people. Like I'm in the room, it just becomes a different kind of meeting, right? Of course, a big new business pitch, or but I, I do got a lot of strategic meetings or business business meetings, and you end up talking about creative. But I try to stay out of the meetings where we're literally presenting work. It's it's just impossible for, for um, I think, our our people to have confidence and people who work, you know, for me to have confidence. If I'm in the room as the most senior creative person, uh, of course it's it happens sometimes. But I really enjoy letting them do the meetings versus me going to them. And yeah, I but I only get nervous when the work isn't very good, right. you know. And hopefully you're never at that point, you know. But you know, you know, everybody knows when. Wow, we just did not nail this. Um, it really, and I'm, especially if I ever have to present the work, if I don't like the work, I, I, I'm not a good faker. I mean, you could tell. I'm, I'm a bumbling idiot. Yeah, and conversely, clients, I think, find when people are presenting work that they believe in, it's irresistible. You know, They may disagree with the work. I can remember winning... Uh, accounts at CPB, and it still happens at Momentum, where clients may not like the work that you're presenting in a pitch, and they'll oh. tell you, you've won the pitch, the work was wrong, but we like the passion, we like the energy, we like the the way that you got to the outcome that we yeah. disagree with, we agree with. It's yeah, just well, the, yeah. But those are those are the clients you want, right. frankly, you know, because you've created this work really uh, without the deep input from a client. So without that, some collaboration, not co-creation, but without the collaboration, like you're guessing a lot of the ways. So you kind of, that's probably the best scenario for making something great is you've gotten some input, you've shown a process that people think is right. You've gotten to a strategic place that people think are right. They just didn't like the execution rather than throwing the agency out. Uh, they say, you know, well, you got here without any of our input. Now let's work together and 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 make something great. That's an all. I think that's the best case scenario. Frankly, it's pretty rare you're making the work you pitch in a, uh, in a or you show in a pitch. It's these days are pretty rare. It's getting more and more rare that, you know, <clears throat> some of these pitches are decided by the work, and regardless of how the agency is or uh, the relationship is or the process is, it's a comes down to testing some work, which is a pretty. You know, tough, tough uh, thing to go into because then you're you often fall into the traps. No matter how good you are, it's like okay, well they're testing. What do we think is going to win in testing? <laughs> or what do we, you know, what's our, how do we optimize testing without you know feeling like we've sacrificed a vision that we have? That that's a that's a really difficult situation that we've we have found ourselves in a few times, um, and it hasn't ended well for us in the end. Right. You know, we did not win. Uh, and probably, you know, maybe that's maybe that's a maybe we're not smart enough to win the testing, or um, maybe the process just isn't right for us, you know. So uh, it is an interesting point. That's why I would choose the scenario of winning the pitch, but maybe starting over with really the input that we is needed to make great work versus winning a pitch with with the work, which will somehow get watered down or changed because the input will come anyway. Right. Uh, or winning by testing. I'm wondering if you've seen any noticeable difference in talent um, and in young talent 10 years ago versus today. Have you seen any any notable change? You know, I mean, it's always easy for the old old men and women of the business to say, you know, no one can write or art direct anymore. Like, it makes me crazy. It makes me not doesn't make me crazy that uh, whether it's true or not, it makes me crazy that people say it. You know, it's like, shut up already. Like, you know how hard it is to be a young creative? 
like when we were in, when I when I was in the business and you're what 10 13 years behind me um I had to put together three four print campaigns some outdoor and sample radio script that was my book and it was hard I can't even imagine what it's like to have to prepare to try to get hired in an ad agency or some kind of marketing creative company. It's really hard. You got to be good at social, good at digital, good at experiential. Think of all the things that our company does. You got to be sort of good at all those things. As a designer, you better be a great graphic designer. You better know how to design uh, banners and you know, ex- you know, user experiences. I mean, it's kind of impossible. We're asking people to be masters of lots of things. Uh, and then we ding them because they're not a strong, you know, long copywriter. Or so I, I feel like it's a big challenge. I do think um, creatives these days are a little more vocal about their careers and where they want to go and what they want to do and get more responsibility. And you know, after six months, like, hey, what's next for me? Versus, <laughs> I don't think I've asked for a raise or promotion in 25 years you know it's just i work for good people who recognize me but i don't really blame millennials or you know whatever we want to call this this generation you know they have grown up in an era of instant gratification you know what since probably they've been in you know 10 10 years old you want to buy something one button you want to talk to somebody one button you want to text one button you know you want pizza one click now like, right. imagine, of course, they're going to, once they get through college, they're into the workforce, they realize, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I've been here six months. I feel like I've been doing pretty good. You know, like, am I getting promoted? Do I get more money? Like, so that's the real tension. You kind of have to say, like, well, this is not how it actually works. Or maybe this should, it's, it's how it should work, but it doesn't work that way. So I think there's, that's the big tension. It's less about, you know, do, you know, young employees, do they want too much too fast? Do they you know want more responsibility? I think it's like, hey, this is just the way you know they've grown up, and do we need to adjust to that mentality, uh, or do do young people have to understand like, hey, you gotta maybe put some time in, or like it's a process, uh, but then they might leave and work at another company. So I think we're at an interesting time of young people coming into the business. Um, the part that they don't want to put the work in, I disagree. With. I feel like this is the generation that's always available always no i know but it's like they're always available always on their phones this like notion of work work life balance is out the window and you know which is a more realistic way to think about our careers there's no way you're going to go home and not think about work and there's no way that you're going to go to work and not think about home so it's like from balance to integration yeah um so they are the best people to work with and um i'm sort of right on the cusp of "Quote unquote," those people. So maybe that's why I'm in defense. Yeah, I mean, you're pretty old now. I mean, let's say you're not that young. Yeah. I mean, you're probably what mid thirties, thirty seven. Yeah, thirty seven. I mean, I feel like you're closer to me than you are to the the young young. Let's just say you're closer to me. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> just, just 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 so I feel better. Um, one thing that you brought to McCann from CPB was the press release press release mm-hmm. approach, and um, that was something that at CPB we kind of felt was proprietary. Now as former CPB people have gone on to run their own agencies, it's pretty well known um, that this is a really effective tactic for getting to great work. Can you just talk a little bit about what it is and why it works and, and why you still lean on it? Well, you know, at the end of the uh, the run at CPB, you know, I also felt like people weren't believing in it anymore. Like, and it, it was frustrating to me that we would do pitches or we would do uh, assignments and people weren't following the process and uh, not just junior people, senior people. So, you know, it, it was, I, it was definitely a good moment in time for it to end between CPB and, and Rob. And so going to a new place, you know, of course you could just, you, 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 you fall back on the things, you know, have been successful and it's amazing a new organization who's never had any process like that how much it how how much they they want it and how valuable it becomes you know so it's new to them you know it might be old to the CPB world but for for new people um, and a new agency it ended up being a really simple process you know and and sometimes we still use it you know we have a really simple process we have truth to meeting that gets you the insights that no one else has that informs the meaningful role in people's lives. And once you have that, 
What's the idea the press will write about? If State Street's meaningful role in people's lives were to uh, help fix this gender diversity problem inside finance, of which they were an issue, they were the part, part of the problem too, well, then you see how uh, they came up with the she fund, which is you can invest in women-led companies and they put pressure on companies. And then you could see how we came up with the idea to do Fearless Girl to promote the very thing that they did, which is based off the meaningful role uh, of helping this this world of finance be more gender diverse. So when you look at the success stories, it's amazing that people don't it's amazing to me that people don't use it more. Even within my own company, I always say, well, what's the meaningful role? Well, what's the press release? What's the, what's the big idea when it lands in culture? Oh, we, ha you know, we haven't done it yet. I said, listen, I, I don't care if you use it. I'm telling you, there's volumes of success stories based on this process. And other people have their own version of it. But that's kind of the world we're living in now, especially it's like we know if it's a great idea within 24 hours. You know, it lands in culture. It flies around the, you know, internet in, you know, less than 24 hours. We'll know. You know, Fearless Girl, forget winning an award. It won in culture. That's what matters the most. You know, it affected culture. It changed culture. It was inspiring to people. Yes, it, then it wins a lot of awards. But that was never the motivation. It's always the byproduct. I think awards have to be the byproduct. It can't be the motivation. You know, I think if you go into... Assignment say, How do I win an award? You should go into an assignment. So, how do I do something so wildly successful that people will share it and love it and talk about it and repost it everywhere? That's got to be your goal when you do anything. Yeah. I'll tell you personally what I loved so much about Fearless Girl was I think we're in a time now where it's easy for clients and agencies to be very seduced by complex technology. And you know, here's an idea that you know, bronze statues have been around since the Bronze Age. And I think about the simplicity of the idea and the way that the simplicity of it was protected from a bunch of idea-like additions that are sort of activity posing as part of the idea. You know, it's the, you know, we'll create an app where you can superimpose your daughter's face onto Fearless Girl and all the daughters of America can be the Fearless Girl. And, um, you know, this is just a tactic. Why don't we put this in every national park in America? Yeah. And so my question is, is that maybe the best example in your career of protecting a simple idea? I think so. I think, uh, no, I think with with lots of stuff, you know, there's all complications of ownership of the uh, of the girl and the and the statue and legal things you can do with a financial company. And there's all thing there's all these complicated things around Fearless Girl that actually made it very easy to just keep it a statue, right. you know, like sometimes and that was always the plan, you know. Uh those are the things that are most um interesting to me and I think when you do protect the idea and don't try to make too much of it or, you know, uh, bastardize it, you know, I think it, it ends up getting more respect, but it's hard, you know, when you have success, people want to, want to figure out ways to keep milking it, you know, and, uh, those are uptown problems. You know, McCann was the bad guy at the end of Mad Men. Yeah. You know, when you think about old school monolithic agency, McCann may have been the first one to come to mind. And yet so much of the success of the agency over the last three years has been underpinned by this non-traditional and experiential work. What do you think that says about where the industry is headed? Well, I think it says um, talent, you know, or some new talent or sprinkling, you know, some, some dust on some existing talent that might have been, you know, cornered off in a, in a, in a small place somewhere is what's most important and where the industry is going. I think it is who's your talent. I can't, you know, it wasn't, I didn't walk into a, you know, a thing that was super broke, you know, it was a little broke, but there's a lot of great things happening within McCann. So when you look at the people that were there that are now blossoming underneath this new sort of system and Sean and Tom, you know, the guys were there a long time, great creatives, and 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 really good managers and needed you know some support so that talent was already there 
And then you bring in the Eric Silvers, and then Suzanne Powers is here, and then you have Devika, who's been there 15 years, and you put her in more leadership roles. Like, it's not that much of a surprise. I think the industry, you know, McCann can be just as creative as uh, Droga 5, you know? And Droga 5 can be just as, as work on global brands as McCann these days. So uh, I don't think... It's any different other than more agencies now can be great and can do different things. And, you know, we're, we, we benefit from size and having all different kinds of companies that we work with, whether it be Momentum or MRM or Weber Shamwick. So then our offering is just this complete sort of, you know, one one team. And it's kind of be really believable because everybody kind of likes each other in the end. Like the people who run these companies, you know, uh, it's not a... a an accident that you are at momentum, you know, besides being talented, I knew you're a great person that could work with Eric Silver or Sean, Sean and Tom or, or, um, <clears throat> Sung, Sung Chang at MRM. I knew, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I knew you would be able at the very, very least be a good enough person that to, you could work with someone to be successful and could drop your ego and the, and the people we also had could drop their egos. So then we had this great moment of collaboration that feels genuine and real. Like, so it does matter like who the people are, talent and quality of individual. Part know? of working on these huge brands is working in the construct of interagency collaborations. You do it a lot. Yeah. It's changed quite a bit over the past three years. And sometimes, depending on the brand, the swim lanes can be pretty strictly defined. And that comes with pluses and minuses yeah. and sometimes the swim lanes can be quite murky and that comes with different pluses and minuses what what are some of your observations on this construct yeah that's a good question yeah it's 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 probably more murky than it is defined swim lanes you know it's uh but i think sometimes we're, we're asked by our clients or partners to um to bring lots of ideas doesn't matter what it is bring lots of ideas and then <clears throat> then everybody's pitching film ideas and everybody's pitching experiential ideas and uh it gets it gets challenging because you want to you know be working together uh but sometimes you're competing so i i think it's up to the to the you know yes is it up to the agencies to be adults and say hey this is how we're going to do it? but it's also up to the clients to to say hey everybody's everybody's important everybody's involved we need to just get to the best idea no one's losing their job. No one's losing the account. Let's just roll. And I think once that happens, then everybody has the confidence. But when it's, you know, a little bit of Lord of the Flies, you know, you're less likely to say, hey, let's collaborate, guys. You know, we need to make sure we're all on the same page. Um, and, you know, it's. I think that's It's here to stay. I don't think it's going away. So I think we have to figure out um, how to be adults. But I think when we all feel confident in our business... We're okay with where the wherever the idea comes from, uh, you know, we're good. But if there's not a real defined, not swim lanes, but a real defined confidence in all the agencies, then it becomes a competition and survival of the the best idea and the best agency who delivers it. And maybe that's the way it always should be, but when you can't be asked to collaborate the next day. Right. Yeah, it is definitely the reconciling of this contradiction of um, you guys succeed together or fail together, so you better work closely. But every once in a while, there will be a jump ball where you will be in competition, and and that's um, okay if yeah. if everybody feels confident in their in their contract yeah. and in their relationship, you know. And that's and that's where uh, sometimes you know clients can be can can hey you guys need to collaborate once in a while we got a big problem that everybody's got to just throw the best idea in but hey you're all our partners and, and you'll you know you're all fine just just everybody put their head down and start working you know versus shit now we're in a pitch are we pitching are we pitching the whole business what's happening here that's where it gets murky and that's where i you know the the good clients are uh have have been really smart in saying no this is what you guys do this is what you do sometimes there will be a moment where you have to all go for it because we're you know the business is suffering or whatever that may be so um you know that we have some good clients who know how to do that um whether at mccann or at crispin or as a young whippersnapper at hill holiday is there one favorite idea that never got made 
Wow, so many. I don't know. You know, a mini counterfeit almost didn't get made. Uh, that took two years to make. That's one of my favorite ideas. Um, but I don't know. You know, I, I don't know if there is. I think there is. Uh, there was this idea that I had a couple of years ago. It's called Pet Ready. And I have all these friends who have uh, kids, right? I don't have my wife, Laura, and I don't have any kids. By choice. And she, um, you know, there's always, oh, I want to get a little dog. It's like, I'm not getting a dog, you know. And then I hear about all these parents who's like, oh, they're, they're kids. They want a dog, right? Uh, and I'm like, yeah, but you're going to be walking that dog the whole time. They might want it. Like, you know, how do they prove to you that they, you know, can handle this dog? You know, you got two young kids. At some point, they're going to say, Daddy, I want a dog. Hard no. Hard no. Sure it is. Hard no until they look at the... I've seen these kids. They're very beautiful. So I don't think, you know, you'll be able to resist. You, you seem like a tough guy, but you won't be. I can tell with these with these kids because, you know, you live out in Brooklyn. You got a little bit of a yard, I think, right? So there's no excuse, right? So I came up with this idea for Purina, which is a Nestle client, uh, called Pet Ready. And it was a way to... Uh, teach your kids the, the the time management of what it will be like to have a dog. And it's a, it's would go on your your app, would go on your tablet, right? Kids come come home from school, you know, there's probably this strict rules from 3 to 4 you can watch TV, but then you do your homework or whatever it might be. Uh, and they're on their tablet watching something, all of a sudden the tablet stops. And a little dog comes comes on and says time to walk me. So you have to literally take the tablet and walk around the house or it's nice that walk outside for five minutes. And once they've done it for a month or so, maybe they've proven, you know, every day they've got to do this thing, which what is what it's going to be like to have a dog. Um, and I think it actually gets the reason I liked it. It's like the, for parents and families who don't have pets, if this is the thing that gets them over the barrier of getting the pet, which is the fear of their kid won't do the stuff it needs to do, uh, like take care of the dog and walk the dog and you'll end up doing it, uh, then it gets maybe some brand love into Purina. So if they do, in fact, get the dog at the end, uh, they're probably going to buy Purina dog food and you know, Purina products because there's here's a, here's a company who actually tried to do something to help me by training my kids. So... It's still in. I, I it's. I love this idea. I presented it multiple times. I think pet smart. Are you out there? Are you pet, listening? Pet to ready. This? Pet. Oh, pet smart. Yeah. Yeah. Pet ready. So uh, I think it's a whole line of brand, a whole a line of stuff. Like, how do you get a family ready for a pet? Gold. And in two months, Gold, you're on Jerry. Shark Tank. I'm going to end with a. Yeah, it should be on Shark Tank. Damn. I'm going to end with not a. Question. Do you like that idea? I love that idea. Yeah. In fact, when someone hears this podcast and funds it, yeah, I feel like I get five percent. Yeah, yeah, whatever. We work. You'll have to work on it, you sure. know. But we're not renaming it Pet Ready. It's already trademarked. Um, I'll end with not a question, but a theory, and you can tell me if it's accurate, inaccurate, or it's complicated. The theory is that you spent over a decade at Crispin. You enjoyed a lot of success there, and while you were there. Part of enjoying success was that you had a chip on your shoulder. And you're very competitive. You come from a long line of competitive Rileys. Between the last job and this job, you did a lot of work on yourself about what kind of leader you want to be. And I feel like if the chip is still there, it's much harder to see. And you've enjoyed incredible success. And as a friend, I see that and, and I, I feel like I'm happy for you that you're realizing that the chip wasn't the cause of the success. And in fact, this you might have enjoyed the success despite the chip, not because of it. Um, accurate, inaccurate, or it's complicated? Hmm. Well, you know, I never uh, even understood that phrase, chip on your shoulder. I mean, I know what it means, but there's a, oh, he's got a chip on her shoulder, or she's got a chip on her shoulder. I definitely, ha you know, I, I, I had a... Uh, career in New York working at different agencies and then at 34 you know as acting you know CCO of Hill Holiday New York I quit and started over cut my salary by 60% and my title to copywriter and started over at Crispin because I kind of realized that I had all the other skills 
of a creative director or what I thought was a creative director. And I had done, had scraped together enough work or was, you know, had enough ingenuity to, to get outside brands and whatever it was to put together a decent book, decent enough that Alex Boguski was like, okay, I, I like, I like this, not everything, but I like some of it. And, and I had tried to work at Crispin years ago, so he had already knew me a little bit. So I definitely realized that I wasn't in the military and it was up to me to either try to be great um, as a great copywriter and a great creative versus a great creative director. So I went to Crispin uh, as a copywriter and it was a huge ego hit, you know, because here I was, I was a acting CCO of Hill Holiday in New York and now I'm back to being in 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 a group, and I, when I first got there, Alex didn't, and I was the guy from New York, right? At this time, it was like 2002 or th- three, 2002, I don't know. And I had all the wrong gear, like I had all the wrong shit. <laughs> Everybody had flip flops and shorts and and you know uh, short sleeve shirts, and I had black Prada shoes. And you were like, an outsider. I was an outsider. Plus, my girlfriend was Laura Bowles, who everybody loved, and here is this. You know, and I was the first creative director level, even though I was just a copywriter that Alex had hired. So I had all these things against me. And after a, a about, and Alex didn't give me a partner either. He was like, you're going to, I'll work on it, you know? So he was really putting me through the ringer. And after about a month, and I've told this story before, so you, if whoever's listening might have heard it, you know, sorry. But after about a month, Alex calls me in his office, right? And he says, listen, man, I, I love you. I think you're awesome. I love what you're doing. I know you haven't sold any work. I know you don't have a part in your frustration, but I think you're great. But here's the deal. No one else here likes you. <laughs> cool, cool. I was like, and I was like, what? I, and I was thinking to myself, like, what the fuck? No one likes me. I'm trying so hard. Now, you realize you're from New York and you've got that just New Yorkness about you, whatever it is. So even though I thought I was being like walking on eggshells and just trying to do the work, I was probably just had too big a mouth and had just a defensive characteristic about me that it born out of being in New York my whole life. And uh, so Alex, I thought he was going to say like, you know what, screw everybody else. Just, you just do what you do, you know? And he said, listen, so it doesn't matter if I like you, if no one else likes you, you have to leave. I was like, oh, Wow. So I remember going back to the apartment that my girlfriend, now wife, were sh- was we were sharing, and I was like, "Fuck this place!" You know, I'm so st- I gave up a lot to come here. People don't want me here. I don't want to be here. Uh, and my wife says, "You know what? You've done nothing, right? You've done nothing here. Why don't you just try shutting up and doing the work?" And I and I was I definitely was not happy with her, uh, and went to bed thinking, "All right, I'm quitting tomorrow." And uh, I woke up the next day. So, you know, I gave up all this to come here. I want to be a better creative. I want to learn the craft more. I know this is the right place. Um, and I went into Alex's office and said, you know what? I've spent 10 years building my own brand to a marginal success. I'm just going to build yours. So you won't hear a word from me. I'm just going to do the work. And for the next six months, I don't think I spoke to anybody. I just sat in my office and did work. And then you get a couple things through and you start selling a couple things and then you make something that everybody thinks is amazing. You start earning your stripes as a copywriter. Uh, And it changed my whole perspective on everything. Everything I knew about being a creative director was wrong. Everything I knew about being a creative was wrong. Alex taught me everything. Alex, Andrew, the whole system did. And then, uh, you know, after years of, of doing that, you know, I think I just became the person who tried to solve the problem for Alex. And, uh, and, you know, in the end, you got rewarded because I had all the other skills of managing. I knew how to manage the clients. I knew how to, like, manage a meeting. Um, but then I, you know, after, you know, a few years of it, I was actually a pretty talented writer, I think, at that point, which I don't think I was before. I wore, or I was, I was just doing it all wrong. I couldn't figure it out. So, But by the time at the end of, uh, you know, you know, 2000, maybe, I don't know, 12, we had one interactive agency of the year. We were Grand Prix winner for Titanium. We were the agency of the year at Cannes, basically. And uh, all the people came, all the partners came back and said, hey, we need to have a meeting. And I walk in and they said, well, here's the problem. 
I go, what, we're out of champagne? <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> and I was the CCO at the time. Andrew was the CEO. Alex had was gone by that point. And uh, Andrew said, no, people think you're disrespectful. And I was like, I'm sorry. We just went eight into the year. Are you literally telling me people think I'm disrespectful? Who cares? Like, do you want to be great or me to be Mr. Rogers? So Andrew said, yeah, you have to be both. I was like, I don't know how to do that, you know? And uh, he said, well, you got to do this executive training. You got to go to a coach or you got to leave. So it's sort of the second time bookended of people telling me for different reasons. One, you know, when I first started that I was just too, uh, no one liked me. Maybe I was just too New York and too defensive. And then 10 years later, after all the success, I was still being told I have a problem with my personality. And that was, I was too hard on people. I was too disrespectful to account people or whatever it was. And, uh, you know, so bookended by your personality flaws. So you either say, you know what, screw everybody. I'm leaving. I'll get any job I want now, now that we're agency of the year. Or do you care more about how you're perceived by people in the world? And it didn't take me long to, you know, get over the anger of my partners calling me in for an intervention, basically, to uh, saying, all right, I'll do this coaching. And, and one of the main reasons that I've talked about before is that Andrew said, I'm going to also do the coaching because I need, I have my own issues, which as a CEO, I thought was maybe his greatest moment because that made me feel like, okay, Here's a CEO saying, also, I need to work on myself. And I did it for a year. We both did it for a year. And I think Jeff Steinauer might have done it too. Like, and uh, I hated it at first. You had to Skype with this guy every week. and uh, But then I really liked it. And I promise you I would not have this job if I hadn't done that training. Because I've completely changed how um, I interact with people. And I completely changed how I – doesn't mean I'm any less hard on the work. But I'm uh, I'm tough on the work and nice on the people, which is, I think, a great way to go through it. So I encourage people who have personality flaws of being an asshole or <laughs> being disrespectful to seek out some kind of coaching, seek out some kind of like personal self-help. It's not a sign of failure. It's a sign of uh, you want to be a better person. So I did it. You know, I'm not I'm I'm. I'm a recovering asshole, I like to say. <laughs> I got to continue to work on it. Um, but, you know, the, the business is too hard. You know, you, inside, uh, the, outside, the business is hard. So if inside your own agency, if, the, if you can't make that a great place to work uh, or a nice place to, for people to work, doesn't mean it's, you're, you're easy on the work or it's not hard or people don't get passionate. But, you know, life's too fucking short. So as a bonus piece of content, I was wondering if you could share uh, an infamous story for which I could find no video evidence, and it was the night that the ADC honored Alex Bogusky and Sir John Haggerty. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was incredible. It was probably mid-2000, 2008-7, and both Alex and John Haggerty were being inducted into the Art Director's Hall of Fame. Art Directors Club Hall of Fame. And there are, you know, maybe 10 of us from Boulder or Miami that were there. And Alex's parents were there. And it was pretty awesome, right? And one of the bonus features of the night, it must have been maybe 200 people there, right? It was in the club. It was really intimate and, and, and nice. It was a dinner. And one of the best parts of the night, and the the, the highlight was going to be a a talk between John Haggerty and Alex Bogusky. Uh, no moderator, just the two of them on the stage. Here's the the, the legend of, of John Haggerty, and here's Alex. And it, it, Crispin was at the height. It was probably 2008. It was about the height of of the history of Crispin, right? The, the, the great history of Crispin. So, and I don't know if they even met each other before, right? <laughs> so they get on stage, and there's some pleasantries. And mind you, there's no interviewer, right? So they're interviewing each other. So you're kind of wondering where this is going. You assume it's just going to be, you know, you know, you're a great man. Man, what you guys are doing, it's so inspiring. And, uh, you know, starts off with Sir John says to Alex, I'm going to do a terrible British accent because I've met John and 
not a lot of times, but a few times. And I have tremendous respect for him uh, and both he and Alex. And he goes, uh, I really do like those stunts you guys do. <laughs> and Alex, I mean, without missing a beat, that thank you, thank you, John. And I still uh, am amazed that you uh, continue doing these long copy ads that no one reads. Shit. So we're all sitting there like, are you kidding me? Is this happening? It's basically like the old legend and the new warrior facing off for an hour. And it, it, it would weave in from compliments to just jabs. And it was like watching a prize fight. You know, but not like it got we didn't get crazy, but it was it started that way. So it was it was kind of insane to see. Here are your two like you could say the spectrum of legends of, of advertising and uh they just, you know, didn't weren't on the same page, that's for sure. But the night ended pretty sweet and pretty awesome. But man, it was uh if to be there was awesome. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, dude, it's been awesome. All right. Thank you to Rob. Thank you to The One Club. Thank you to JSM Music. Thank you to my man, Jeff Fiorello, for producing this podcast. While we're at it, thank you to my childhood best friend's mother, Debbie Kennedy in Tucson, Arizona, for listening to every episode and texting me meticulous feedback. Keep it up, Debbie. If anyone else is out there enjoying the pod, please subscribe, rate it on iTunes, tell your friend, hell, tell your mom. Talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.